Uh, as Jake said, my name is Kyle York. I, back in probably 2002 or 2003, I was a student at Mississippi State and began to be discipled by a guy named Randy Phillips. So uh, I know that for some of us, that's a connection. Now it's on. All right. My name is Kyle York. Uh, and uh, that's how I'm connected to, to, I guess, both Dustin and Ryan, is that we were all discipled by Randy at one time or another. And, uh, and then I've kept in touch a little bit with them over the years, uh, living here in this area. Uh, very, very grateful to be here. My wife, Jennifer, and our two boys, Mason and Caleb, were really honored. So uh, thank you for having us. We, uh, let's look at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians 2. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you have a digital Bible in your hands, you can uh, plug in the, the NASB. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, imagine if you were walking along one day, you look down the, the street because something catches your eye, and it's a quarter. So you do what most of us would do. You reach down, you pick up the quarter. But when you begin to look at it, you, you recognize uh, that it's not a quarter, it's, it's a coin you've never seen before. So you do a little research, and you find out that it's actually a very rare coin worth about a million dollars. We'd all be very happy for you if that were the case. But the idea is that what you thought was something totally ordinary and very mundane and everyday turned out to be so much more than what you thought. And that's kind of how our scripture functions uh, today, that the Apostle Paul is going to issue to us a command, which on the surface seems to be a fairly simple and straightforward command, kind of like any other biblical command that we find in in the letters of Paul. But then in it and through it, what we find is something really extraordinary. And Philippians 2 actually becomes, in my opinion, one of the more significant scriptures in all the Bible. And we'll see what we mean as we walk through it. Our text actually begins Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. But we're going to read back a little context before we get into that. And so I want you to look to your left, actually, to chapter 1. I'm not going to preach the context, really, but it's going to help us to see where the Apostle Paul is taking us in his conversation here with the church in Philippi. So look back at chapter 1, actually, verse 27. And we're going to read up to uh, the chief uh, text for us today. Uh, In verse 27, Paul now speaking to the church of Philippi, and by extension, us, the church today. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, chapter 2, therefore if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What the Apostle Paul is trying to do for the church here is to bring us together. There's a sense of unity in his writing that he wants us all together to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in a way that reflects the gospel that we have believed in. And he goes on to say, not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but we together ought to suffer for his sake. He's called us 
for that purpose, and that we should be united together. That in fellowship as the church, we ought to be united together for the sake of the gospel. So there is a conduct that, that reflects our faith, there is a suffering because of our faith, and there's a unity in, in the light of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul says you ought now to have a unified mind and spirit and love and purpose. That's the church. And Paul, to get us to a unified place, Paul now is going to launch into a command to be, to be humble people. And it's almost like Paul knows that if we're going to be unified, the path to unity is paved with humility. Prideful people don't unite, do they? But humble people do. So that's where Paul's going to take us now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 3. By way of command, verse 3, Paul says to us, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I feel certain that uh, all of us in this room, I'm sure, would agree that humility is a good thing and pride is a bad thing, right? And most of us, maybe all of us, would, would think of ourselves as humble people. You probably consider yourself to be a humble person. Most of our society does, by the way, whether Christian or not. We all think ourselves humble. I struggle with pride, sure, just like anybody else does. But deep down, I'm a humble guy. But of course, we're not establishing that definition of humility on the culture, right? We establish it on the, what the Word says. And what Paul gives us here in Philippians 2 is what I think the greatest definition of humility in the Scripture. And when we read it, when we actually establish humility on biblical grounds, it ought to cause us some pain to read the command. It ought to bring to you and bring to me some abrasion. Because I recognize that the measure, the test of humility, is something far more than what the culture would demand from me. Right? What does Paul say? He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. And I just wonder if you would take a little inventory. How do you measure up to that standard? How do you, how do you measure up to that test, the definition of biblical humility? That you do nothing from selfishness. You're never selfish or vain, empty, conceit. That you, uh, that you always put others in front of yourself, both externally, but especially internally, in your own heart. Paul knows what he's doing here in Philippians 2. He knows he's giving us an alien command. Paul knows that what he's commanding us is something that, is, that violates our nature. It's not natural to us. It's outside of, of what we are apart from Jesus Christ. And I would say this with great confidence. Nobody left to themselves by their own energy and, and based on their own character uh, can do this. Can obey this command that we just read in verses 3 and 4. We may think we're humble, but the scripture reveals the truth about us. And Paul doesn't stop here. And this is what I love about Philippians 2. Paul gives us the command, and the command itself would be enough. The Bible says it. It's obviously good and right in the sight of God, and therefore we ought to go and strive to do it. But Paul doesn't stop with the command. He doesn't leave us hanging only there. He keeps going now to establish for us a much bigger picture of what humility really looks like. And so if you look at verse 5, now what we just read, verses 3 and 4, it's kind of like the quarter that we found on the ground, remember? You reach down, you pick it up thinking it's one thing, but when you take a closer look, you realize there's so much more to this. And that's what verse 5 kind of launches us into. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So it's not just a command for its own sake right here. He, 
He's building a bridge. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Paul is not commanding humility in the abstract. He's giving us a baseline. He's giving us an example. And the literal reading of that verse, 5, is have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Keep on thinking the same way that Jesus was thinking. And what Paul is about to do He's going, to, he's going to paint for us a picture of Jesus that for us as Christians is kind of like trying to, to stare into the sun. What we're about to read of Christ is one of the more magnificent scriptures that you're ever going to come across. It's a transcendent mountaintop kind of uh, scripture. But Paul is trying to show us how Christ exemplified the command here. How Christ exemplified humility. So come back with me to verse 5. Where he says, have this attitude, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And Paul's point there in verse 6 is that though Jesus is God, he did not insist on holding on to his divine power or status or privilege, And actually, if you happen to have the newest version of the NIV, uh, I don't normally read the NIV, but I think they do a really good job of verse 6 in getting to the heart of the original Greek that Paul wrote in. And so I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 again, but I'm going to give you verse 6 in the NIV just uh, for our sake to better understand, I think, what's happening here. Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus is the eternal God, and yet he did not use his status, his privilege, his, his divine uh, essence, he didn't use that to his own benefit. He didn't hold on to it. That's what grasp means. He wasn't grasping at something he didn't have. He was refusing to hold on to something that rightly belonged to him. And instead, Paul says, he willingly let it go. Now think about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think in the Gospels and all the narrative about Christ. Was there ever a time where Jesus used his divine power to his own advantage to serve himself? I can't think of If you think of one, let me know after the service. I'll change my sermon. I can't think of one. Satan tried to convince him in that direction. Remember, Satan said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? I know you're hungry. Feed yourself. Jesus said, no, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan said, throw yourself off the top of the temple. Don't you know? And it's written in the word that God will charge his angels concerning you. You won't even strike your foot against the stone. Everyone will see how marvelous and how magnificent you are. And Jesus said, no, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. When Jesus was on the cross, what did the mockers say to him? Take yourself down from there and we'll believe in you. You saved others, can't you save yourself? And yet, no, Jesus, what did he do? Uh, what, first Peter, maybe? He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Jesus had every opportunity to exert his power to serve himself, and yet he never did once, to my knowledge, he never did it. So Jesus is God. The throne rightly belongs to him, Paul says, but he didn't hold on to it. He poured himself out. That's what verse 7 says. What did Jesus do instead? Instead of grasping at his rightful place, verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. 
taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of men. You think about this. When, when little baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem, our culture sees that as some kind of precious thing, and I'm sure it was very precious. But when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was the great God of the universe stripping himself, in a sense, stripping himself of his majesty. That was Jesus pouring himself out, and we don't need to misinterpret what that means. In Colossians 2, Paul tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of God's deity dwells in bodily form. That for Jesus to become a man was not for him to cease being God. He didn't have to stop being God in order to become one of us. The scripture says, uh, Hebrews 2, I think, says that uh, he was made like his brethren in all things. He, didn't, he, he was fully God and yet fully man. And he came to make himself nothing. That's the whole point of his, uh, the, the symbolism of his birth. We'll talk about that in, in, in a minute. The symbolism of how he came to this. He emptied himself. He willingly chose to do what he did and make himself uh, of no esteem, right? And Jesus could have merely appeared as a man. In fact, that was one of the great false teachings, one of the great heresies of the early church. This idea that, that flesh, that, that matter, is, is evil. Spiritual things are good, but flesh is evil, and so God can't become a person. That would be too condescending for God. He can't take on flesh. And so the idea was that Jesus merely appeared like a man. He was some sort of spiritual being that looked like us, but he was really just masquerading. Kind of like Superman, if you're familiar with Superman. Uh, Superman put on a, a pair of glasses and a coat and tie and took on this alter ego named Clark Kent. But Clark Kent was not a human being, right? If you know the story. And nobody could figure out the difference somehow. <laughs> All he had was on, you know, it's just glasses. But the, the idea behind Superman is that the, the spandex S was right there below the surface all the while, right? He was impersonating humanity. He never was one of us. And, and this idea that somehow Jesus, because he's got to maintain his purity and holiness, he can't really become a human being. And yet the scripture is very clear. Hebrews 2. He became, he was made like his brethren in all things. Jesus was not like Superman masquerading to put on a show for us. He wasn't impersonating. He became like us. He shared in flesh and blood. So if you would concede, okay, God can become a man. As crazy as that sounds, yes, I'll concede that. It's like our nature would demand, however, that Jesus could, could come to be a man, but he could only come in majesty. Right? Because God is majestic, Jesus will come, but he'll, he'll be born in a palace, he'll be a king with a scepter reigning and ruling over the nations. Right? Surely that makes sense. And yet again, the scripture says no. Paul says no. That's not how Jesus came to us. He didn't appear in some form of majesty. In fact, the scripture says that he took on the form of a bondservant. That's the, that's the Greek word doulos, which is actually the word slave. A slave who chooses to be a slave, not one who's sold into slavery, but who willingly sets himself aside and takes on indentured servanthood. He became a slave. Jesus went, think about it now, Jesus went from the highest conceivable position down to the very lowest, born in a feeding trough, born in a manger, raised in a tiny forgotten village, spent a good deal of his ministry homeless. On the day that he was killed, everything he owned to his name 
was the clothes that he wore on his back. That was it. And even those were taken off of him and gambled away. And, and they crucified him naked. And they killed him as a criminal. Jesus Christ emptied himself. The God who had everything made himself nothing. And why? Why? Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even at the point of death on the cross. Jesus didn't just come to earth so that he could better relate to us. He didn't just come to show us a better example as to how we ought to strive to live our lives. He certainly didn't come to show himself off and earn our acclaim and our applause. No, the scripture says that Jesus came to lay everything down as a sacrifice. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. And that's about as low as we can go, right? But no, the scripture says it goes even lower than that. Because you think about the people that Jesus died for. Who did Jesus die for? If there were some scenario where Jesus could come simply to rescue out the, a remnant of truly holy, righteous, wonderful, God-fearing people. Right? To, to rescue these people out of the stains of, of all humanity and the filth that we're living in here, and that Jesus could come and preserve these righteous folks out, you know, by his death on the cross. There's no such scenario, because the scripture is clear that there is no one righteous, right? There is no such remnant of holy and righteous, wonderful people that Jesus came to die for, because they were like God in the first place, and he wanted to rescue them out of the rest of humanity. No, he came to die for the very worst of the worst. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Those who had rejected God, those who had rebelled against God. Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were his enemies. Ephesians 2, that while we were children of wrath, God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He came and died for people who not only could never pay him back, but truly a people who didn't want him in the first place. He died for his own enemies. He went as low as you could possibly go. And, and uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in, in New York City, makes a great point on this as to how Jesus comes to us, what was revealed to us here in Philippians 2. Jesus comes to us in a way that is completely opposite of how we function as humanity. That whereas Jesus was in every way equal with God, right? Who, in, who being in very nature God, equal with God, yet he didn't grasp that. He didn't hold on to his own equality with God, his own divine status and privileges. He willingly let it go and poured it out. But on our part, human beings, though we are unequal with God, we constantly are grasping at God, at God's position, at God's authority, at God's autonomy. That's been our story from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good to make one wise, right? And that was Satan's temptation. This will make you like God, knowing good and evil, and they devoured it at the prospect of having more, of having God's seat somehow on the throne. And that's us now. We're no better. That anytime you and I, anytime we say to ourselves, I know what God says, I know what His Word commands, I know what is good and right, but I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm going to do what I want to do. Anytime we say that to ourselves, we are grasping at His position. 
We're trying to make ourselves the authority as to what is good and right. We're trying to make ourselves autonomous that God does not rule over me. And what he says is good advice, but it's not binding on my life. We're grasping at his position. The thing that Jesus refused to do is the thing that we're insisting on doing when we sin. And human human nature is always seeking a way up. And you think about this. We're always seeking to elevate ourselves. More money, more possessions, more power, more applause, more attention, more respect, more happiness. We're always seeking more, a way up. And yet Jesus on his part, what does Philippians 2 tell us? That Jesus on his part, though he had everything to his name already, he plunged himself into the dark. He willingly chose to make himself nothing. He went down to the very bottom, giving no thought to himself, the scripture says, but he made it his purpose to seek and to save that which was lost. God, I think I'm right in saying this, God has no need for humility. God, by definition, has no need to be humble, does he? I mean, the supreme, all-powerful ruler, creator, sustainer of the universe. What good does humility do God? We need to be humble because we're sinful and unworthy, right? Humility should be something we seek out because of our reality. But God in His reality is completely perfect. There's no need for that, to be humble. And the Scripture is so clear on this, that Jesus chose the manger. He chose the dust of the earth to make it His home. He chose the cross. And he did those things, the scripture is clear on this, that he did those things because he had chosen you. He had chosen you. It would not have been sinful or wrong for Jesus to remain in glory. He could have stayed where he was and we would have. We, there, there's no argument against him for that. But if it meant remaining in glory and sinners being lost without hope, he poured himself out. He debased himself. He demeaned himself. So that he might do the greater thing in his eyes, which was to bring us to saving faith and eternal glory with him. Paul says, you want to know what humility looks like? Here it is. This is it. And it's wonderful, isn't it? It's glorious. And we notice what comes of Christ's humility now. Right? The one who left his, his celestial place, who ended up in the pitch black tomb. From one opposite end to the other. And yet the scripture is so wonderful to us and, and, and showing us, revealing to us that that's not the end of the story, right? That would be an awesome example of humility if the story were to end in the tomb. A failed Messiah, right? One who tried his best, who set a great example for us to live, how to live. And we should follow his example, but truly there's nothing beyond it to speak of. But no, look at verse 9. Verse 9, Paul says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him. You think of the resurrection, Jesus' ascension. Uh, well, Paul tells us here. He highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who made himself nothing, nothing, now enjoys the name above all names. And every person, every person who has ever lived, ever, 
will kneel before Jesus Christ and acknowledge his lordship. Every person will confess him as Lord, and it will be to the glory of God the Father. All throughout the scriptures, um, if, you're, if you're familiar with Proverbs, if you're familiar with Jesus' words in the Gospels and, and in many other places, it's, it's, a, um, it's a, a wonderful principle we see where God humbles the proud, right? But he exalts the humble. It's this backward, again, again, against our nature, but it's how God works. He humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. And Jesus is, is the forerunner. He's the greatest example of that principle and of that promise. Because remember, again, unlike us, Jesus had no reason to be humble. We have reason to be humble. He did not. He had everything to his name, and yet he chose to humble himself, to become obedient to the point of death. He delighted to do that. The Father didn't drag Jesus kicking and screaming into this. Jesus delighted to do it, because it was to the glory of his Father, and it was to the salvation of sinners, you and me. I said this at the beginning, that, that what, what we are reading today um, is, is one of the places in the Scripture that's like going up on the very top of the mountain, where we get a very clear picture of just the transcendence of Jesus here. To see Him in all of His majesty, to see Him as to what He was pre-existent, He is God, this is a great Scripture, to validate Jesus' deity, but what He then willingly chose to become, and the mindset and the activity of the cross, and then the outcome of that unto all eternity, that which when you and I pass into his glory, that will be the great focus forever and ever, the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus in the name above all names. We can see it all laid out real right here, just in really just a few verses. But I want you to remember now that I, what I believe Paul's purpose in writing Philippians 2, it's not just to give us a great picture of Christ that we should admire. Certainly we should. But remember the context as to how we started back in verse 3. The Apostle Paul does not want us only to admire Jesus' humility. He wants us to adopt it. He wants us to be like him. Remember, that's why Paul tells us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard others is more important than yourselves. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus exemplifies. That's who Jesus is, the one who did not stare at himself in the mirror and admire his own glory. He emptied it out. He poured it out to the last drop so that we could share his glory, so that we could, could partake of the divine nature and be called his brothers and sisters and children of God. And so Paul is calling us to humility, right? Not in the abstract, but very, very pointed. I want you to be like Christ here. And what we know of Christ is that he was truly humble. And I said this earlier also, that, that verse 3 and verse 4 are pretty intimidating. And I, maybe, maybe you're, you've got the market cornered on humility here, but for me at least it makes me squirm to recognize just how far short of the bar I seem to always fall. And so Paul has given us a command that at least in my flesh for sure feels impossible. And then Paul has followed it up with a, an example that's even more impossible, Right? That if you're struggling to live humbly, we'll just be like Jesus, right? The divine Son of God who became a sinless human being and died on behalf of the sins of the world. Just, just be like Him, right? And, and you'll, you'll be fine. It's, it's, it's to us impossible. And no one, right? No one on their own, no one left to their own energies can do this. 
And so for us, if we're given... Um, if we're given the command and told to just grit our teeth and try harder, I'm telling you right now, and you know this is true, the only option for us is failure. And ultimately despair. Because the bar is so wonderfully high, and yet I can never seem to get there. But that's not the end. Right? That's not how Philippians 2 ends. And it's not, for us, how we end a church service where we're called to obey something that's difficult. We don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, for some maybe, but not for me. No, there's hope for us as to how to actually become this kind of person Paul knows that Jesus is the only truly humble person that ever lived. I mean, there have been some humble people. We see heroes of humility in the scriptures. But only Jesus was a man who was never touched by the stain of pride. Not one time did he ever put himself above others. Jesus is the only truly humble man from top to bottom. But Paul also affirms throughout his letters. He's going to affirm it here in a minute. We'll see. The scripture affirms all throughout the New Testament that Jesus is not just our example He's also our empowerment, because He dwells within us. Jesus has come by faith in Him. If we are saved by Christ, He has come to make His home within us, John 14. He now abides in us, John 15. The Scripture is, is um, uh, such a, a vivid picture in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. The very presence of God now dwells within you as a believer in Jesus Christ to empower you, to empower me to the commands of Scripture. We're not left on our own. That's why we're told in verse 5, remember, have the same mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's not an act of human will. If you've ever tried really, really, really hard to be humble, that doesn't work. Because God has got to come in and do a transforming work in your heart and in your mind to produce it. It's not something you can make happen on your own, but Paul assures us here that you don't have to. You don't have to. And so if the question is, okay, I recognize the command and I recognize Christ's example, how do I become more this way? I want to be humble like Jesus. And the answer that Paul gives us is actually a bigger answer only than humility. That's our context today. But I'm telling you right now, any command of Scripture, how do I obey it from the heart, not in a legalistic way, but how do I actually become the kind of person that God in His Word is commanding me to become? Paul's going to give us the answer to that. In this case, it's humility, but I want you to look at Philippians 2.12, the very next verse, after the exaltation of Christ, Paul turns it back to us, the church, and he gets very practical here with us. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Paul, what Paul is saying, this is one of the great sanctification verses in your Bible. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now what Paul is not saying here is that you ought to work to earn your salvation. I think y'all are probably clear on that. This is not working to earn something that you don't already have. This is not striving with all your might to complete something that Jesus has left unfinished. As if he took you most of the way, but you've just got to cross the finish line on your own. That's not how salvation works. And uh, this is a person who's already been saved. And Charles Spurgeon spoke, I think, really well on this. I'm going to quote Spurgeon here from uh, 150 years ago. He said, 
what is to be worked out, work out your salvation? He says, what is to be worked out must first be worked in. An unconverted man can work nothing out because there is nothing in. You have faith, work it out then. Act like a believer. Trust God in your daily life. Spurgeon says, be you Christ-like inasmuch as the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. So this is not completing salvation or earning or, or even working hard to maintain it somehow. As if God got you in the door, but now it's up to you to finish the work. No, that's not how this works. You are all the way saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And um, you don't need to turn there, but that, the, the image that came to me as I was thinking through this was Hebrews 12. Where the, the, the author of Hebrews gives us this wonderful illustration. When he says, run with endurance the race set before you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For Jesus to be the author and perfecter of faith. What that means is that he began it and he brings it to completion. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega in every regard and, and certainly in regards to salvation. He began your salvation through dying while you were yet a sinner and he brings your salvation to completion. There's nothing for you to bring to the table in matters of salvation. There's no exertion, there's no, there's no need to work to earn or even to maintain what Jesus has done. He begins it and he brings it to its fruition in glory. But listen to this. The scripture tells us all the more. Despite that, or in light of that, actually not despite it, in light of what Jesus has done, run. Run with endurance. It's amazing that to, to receive grace requires nothing of me. I don't add anything to the equation and so there are some, unfortunately, who think that, that the growth of a Christian is the very same way, that God just waves wands over us and makes us something that we otherwise never would be. But no, the Scripture tells us over and again, run with endurance the race that is set before you. 2 Peter 1, with all diligence, supply to your faith moral excellence and godliness and brotherly love and so forth, right? To be diligent, to, 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 to run with all your might and with all your energies, Unto Jesus. That between now and the day that he takes you home to be in his presence, we are to give every amount of our energy to his glory and his praise. And the key word there is devotion. We're called to be devoted to Christ. Not merely to be thankful for his salvation, and now I'll go about my life as if nothing ever happened. That is to be unconverted. Because to be converted, to have faith in Jesus Christ, brings about transformation. A new creation that, that changes the affections and the intentions and the purposes of a person's heart. And that's what it is to work out your salvation. To exercise what Christ has done in a way that it consumes your life to his glory. And to do it, Paul says, in a spirit of fear and trembling. Now, I've always struggled a little bit with that, to be honest. Fear and trembling. What am I supposed to be afraid of? Because if Romans 8 is true, if I'm a child of God, Abba, Father, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, what am I afraid of? God's not going to send me to the bad place if I mess up, is he? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, he's not going to change his mind about me. Why, am I, why, should I be, why should I tremble? I love this. And I, if I can't say something well, I just quote somebody else, okay? Now, I don't know who said this, but I think it's really, really helpful. If you've ever struggled with fear and trembling, okay? Um, I'm just going to quote this here. I think it's really good. Fear and trembling 
describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his own ability completely to meet all requirements, but who religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. Both fear and trembling are proper reactions to the awareness of one's own spiritual weakness and the power of temptation. Together, these words speak of a healthy fear of offending or displeasing our Father and a proper anxiety to do what is right in His eyes. It is certainly not a fear of eternal doom, but a reverential awe that motivates a person to righteousness. Y'all hear that? In other words, if the perfect and righteous Savior of the world, who upholds all things by the word of His power, dwells in me to make me holy, to conform me to His character and His image, then the thought of that ought to make me tremble. Because I know what I am. I know the darkness of my own heart. I know that I'm a sinner. And the only reason I'm even breathing right now is because of His wonderful grace. And so I ought to tremble at the thought of the perfect Son of God dwelling within me, the very Spirit of Christ in me, to produce holiness in my life. I know that it won't happen apart from His work. And so I tremble at the thought of deviating. I tremble at the thought of lazily, apathetically walking around like nothing ever happened to me when I placed my faith in Him. There's a fear and a tremble that go with that. And so a Christian is someone who works not to earn, not to prove, not to be approved, but who works in light of all the grace that we've been given with deepest devotion. Devotion. And, and, now if that were all there was to it, the chance of legalism for us would be quite high, wouldn't it? Work, 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 work. Strive, 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 right? But that's not how Paul ends his command here, right? Or his, his, his statement of fact, actually. When he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for, verse 13, remember this, for it is God who is at work in you. What motivates your work? What makes you holy? It's God who is at work in you, both to produce, to will, and to work for His good pleasure. God is at work in you to do what pleases Him, because we can't live anything like Jesus in our own power. God is the one who ultimately must produce the new heart and the new mind in us. And so we are devoted to Him, but we are also dependent on Him. And that's how sanctification works. Salvation is completely a gift of God that I receive by faith. I don't do anything to add to it, and I can't take away from it. Sanctification, the, the ongoing growth of the believer until we go home to be with Jesus, that is cooperative. That's a participation. That is my work to work it out. That's God's work to produce it in and to bear the fruit out of it. And that's what I think that's what Jesus meant in John 15. When Jesus said, I am the vine... You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Jesus sounded pretty confident when he said that, didn't he? For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the image there is so sweet to us that Jesus is the vine. He's the one who, who is the source of life. The branches are not alive on their own. The branches produce no fruit on their own. In fact, if a branch is detached from the vine, it dries up, it withers away, it's thrown to the fire. But as long as we abide in Christ, the source of all life and godliness, he says there's great fruitfulness for you. Apart from me, nothing. 
but in me more than you could ever imagine. The fruit that comes from me. And so your, your, your life and your vibrancy and your fruitfulness as a Christian is completely tied into these two ideas of devotion, abide in me, Christ says. That doesn't happen by accident. It's not a passive command. Abide in me, devotion, and I abide in you. Our dependence. For only in him do we bear any fruit. And so I want to I appeal to us here. As we've looked at Philippians 2, as we've looked at about half the chapter here, and what Paul's calling us to in humility, he's telling us to have the same mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. The same mind. And so what this affirms to us, I've said it and I'll say it again, the exertion of your will does not produce this. Trying harder to be humble will not work. It's a mind, meaning it's an internal reality that's got to be produced by the Spirit of God who dwells in you that's going to bear external fruit. And it only happens if Christ is in you by faith. But the question is, okay, how do I get there? How do I get? How do I, how do I actually become more humble? Right? I see verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation. God's at work in me. I get the principle there. God doesn't wave a magic wand to make this happen. Remember, this has got to be something that we have to want. I've got to participate in it. I've got to want it more than I want lesser things. I've got to want Christ more than I want my own elevation in life. And so here's my... Profound thought on this. Not profound. Um, if you want the mind of Christ, you've got to give Christ your mind. If you want the mind of Christ, you've got to give him your mind first. Okay? Here's what I mean when I say that. It's very simple. You and I, we've got to turn our thoughts, our devotion, our attention, our preferences our pleasures, our ambitions, all that we are, we've got to turn those things to Christ in His direction. And that is, to some degree, an act of the will. Right? God's at work to produce that way of life, that way of thinking, but we've got to want it, right? And so you've got to give Christ your mind. What Paul commands against in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness, he says, or empty conceit. I mean, that's, that's an abrasive phrase for me right there. Empty conceit. Which simply means, do nothing from a short-sighted, self-centered view of the world. That's what empty conceit is. And it's empty, Paul says. It's hollow. There's nothing in me that is worthy. There's nothing in me worth pursuing. There's nothing in the world worth pursuing. We just sang about it. There's nothing in the world worth pursuing that can measure up to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in the very next chapter. That's empty conceit. And in the olden days, people would say, you can't see past your own nose. That you're so saturated with thoughts of yourself and how you can make much of yourself. Paul says, don't live that way. And the only way to do that is I've got to stop thinking about myself all the time. We're so saturated with ourselves, we don't even realize that I'm thinking about myself 95% of the day. Right? But that's our nature. And so the more I turn my thoughts to Christ, see, if you turn your thoughts to Christ, and I mean you consciously think of Christ. You consciously look into His Word to study it. as the revelation of who He is. You consciously pray with a mind to take the attention off of yourself and onto Him. What will happen to you and what will happen to me is that we naturally begin to fall apart in a good way. I naturally begin to disintegrate. Because it, when we talk about Jesus and me, we're not on equal playing field here, okay? That if it's up to, if it's Jesus, who's going who's gonna to rule my thoughts in my life? Me or Christ? Well, that's not a fair game, right? Why not? 
Because Philippians 2 already told us. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I will confess one day that He is Lord whether I want to or not. Whether I believed in Him and walked with Him or not. I will kneel before Him and confess His rightful place. So if I start turning my thoughts to Christ, who is the greater thing, the greater person, He is Lord, I am not, it becomes easier to lose a sense of self-saturation and of selfish ambition. Not to say it goes away entirely, but the more I think about Him, what's worth thinking about me for? What do I have to bring to the table that's so good and worthy? He's the one who's worthy, not me. He's Lord, not me. And so when we turn our thoughts to Him, that's, that's the attitude that we begin to take on. The greater swallows up the lesser. That's basic spiritual math. The more I love Jesus, the less I'm inclined to love myself. Um, in John 13, if you're really fast, you can turn there, but you don't have to. In John 13, it's this wonderful story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was on the last night of his uh, life. It was before he was betrayed and, and then crucified. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And one of the last, the last act of service before he goes to the cross, he, he gets down on his hands and knees and, and takes a, a towel and a water basin and he washes his disciples' disgusting feet. And it embarrassed them. If you remember the story, they were embarrassed. Something that only the lowliest of a servant would do. Peter tried to stop it. You'll never wash my feet. But Jesus pressed on. He did it for his disciples. And then he says something really interesting. John 13, 16. He says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. A slave is not greater than his master. One who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know this, if you know these things, you're blessed if you apply them, if you do them. Okay, and, and so think about this. If Jesus, the master, he's the master, he's the Lord. If Jesus, the master, stoops so low to love and serve others, how much more should his slaves follow suit? The slave is not greater than his master. And, and the harsh reality for me is this, and this may not apply to you, but, but, but you can, you'll know what I mean here. If I say that I'm a follower of Christ, and yet I'm preoccupied with myself and how I might elevate myself, and how I might find achievement and applause and respect, and how I might gain the world's treasures, and I'm seeking ways to elevate myself, and my thoughts are consumed with myself, and meanwhile, Jesus is over here in the corner on his hands and knees washing feet. That's called a dichotomy. That's called a contradiction. I'm not really following him. I may like the idea of it. It may be culturally advantageous to call myself a Christian here in the Bible Belt. It may be that I admire his character in the same way that people admire Mother Teresa or Dr. King. But I don't really want to be like him because I'm only preoccupied with myself. And the point here I'm making is, the more you know Christ, and the more you obey Him, the more you admire Him, the more you follow Him, the further down you're going to go. That's just how it is. The more we follow Christ, the further down He's going to take us. Because that's where He is. Jesus left the highest place, right? And He went downward and downward until He reached the very bottom. He made Himself lower than every man. 
There was nothing about him that we would esteem him, Isaiah says. Nothing. He debased himself for us. He took no thought of exalting himself. And if we're going to be his followers, the only way is down. The only way is the path of humility, to be like him. And so it is true that the higher you esteem Christ, the lower you're going to esteem yourself. And that's a good thing. That's a necessary thing. John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. I've got to step to the side now to let him take uh, preeminence here. Because it's about him and it's not about me. The more you obey Christ's word, the less you fixate on yourself. And the more, listen, naturally, the more fruitfulness you're going to have, which means you're going to start to think of others as more important than yourself. Because in the pure light of the gospel, I begin to recognize that I am sinful, that I am no good, that I am unworthy. And y'all are too, okay, let's be clear on that. But if I truly love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of, of my life and of the world and of this room, right, those who make up the church, then I take no thought to myself, no vain, empty conceit, no selfishness, but I truly consider you as better than me, as more important than me. That only happens as I follow Christ and as he takes me down to hands and knees, washing feet. And if, if in this downward movement, you and I might worry that somehow, if I, if I do this, if I become that humble, if I really follow Jesus down, the, the, the Savior who came to the world not to rule in majesty, but to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes, to touch the lepers, to heal the blind, to walk around with no place to lay his head. If I'm going to follow him, I'm going to lose my dignity. I'm going to lose all that I've worked to earn and gain, and all the respect and admiration that I've worked to try to achieve from the people around me. I'm going to lose my worth and my value. If that's a fear for you, that's a natural fear, that's our flesh, but it's not rational, it's not real. Because if you are saved, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the scripture says you are in Christ. You are a child of God by His grace. You are a brother or sister of the Savior of the world. And you cannot lose your dignity. The world may trample on you. To be humble may require you to debase yourself and do things that you and your flesh would normally never do. That the world might think you're crazy for doing. But you never lose your worth or your value because it's, it's wrapped up in Him. The one who is exalted above all things, with the name above all names. The scripture says he will raise us up with him. The scripture says that we will reign with him forever and ever. You don't lose your dignity by being humble. You find it. You gain it. Because you take on the heart and the mind of Jesus. And we, we recognize then this, the foolishness of trying to elevate ourselves. And how foolish that is. Because Jesus, the one who had every right to elevate himself chose the opposite. He poured himself out and he now calls us to follow suit, to abide in him and that's where your true worth and value is found. That you are in Christ. That you abide in him day by day even if it means going downward in the world's eyes. That's what we do because that's who God is. We have to be humble. That should be our default because we're sinful and unworthy. He didn't have to but he chose to because in doing so he could make us Sons and daughters of light. He could transfer us to his own kingdom of light and out of darkness. And so don't worry about elevating yourself. I know that's easier said than done. Everything in our nature wants to. But I'm telling you, only God can do that. Only God can exalt. 
right? He humbles the proud, he exalts the humble. Uh, is it First Peter? Uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will do what? He will exalt you. He will lift you up in the proper time. That's his job, not mine. His job is to exalt, not mine. And that should free us from living in a system, a way of thinking, a way of life that insists on self-absorption when Christ has not only modeled for us the opposite, but now calls us to embrace it and to live in it. And it's a wonderful thing. If I would admire Jesus for being this way, why would I not also want to be that way? Because I'm his follower. And so if you're like me, and, uh, and you struggle with selfishness and empty conceit, if you recognize that in you, there's, even if it's just, you may put on a good show externally, but even internally you realize, I, I put myself above others all the time. And if that's in you, you shouldn't have to look that hard to find it, y'all. All right? It's, it's, it's pretty close to the surface for me because I'm so absorbed with me. And if you recognize an inordinate amount of selfishness, what it says to us as the church, we don't have the mind of Christ yet as we ought to. It doesn't mean you're unsaved, but I don't have the mind of Christ yet as I should. That's the command here. Have the same mind, the same attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. There's a reason that Paul is commanding it, because it doesn't occur naturally. We're not already that way. We've got to be commanded, prodded, pushed, encouraged, prayed for to go to that place of humility. We've got to admire Christ, but also want to adopt His character. And so if you're like that, you don't have the mind of Christ as you ought to, but that's not how the story ends. There's no despair in this. There's simply a spurring on, I hope, for us, you and me both, to work out our salvation. I'm not all that I ought to be yet. But by God's grace, I'm here and I'm breathing, so I have opportunity every moment to take on His mind. So let it be, be sober here by the words of Scripture. This is, this is incredibly difficult. But Paul wouldn't command something impossible if the Spirit of God should dwell in us to produce it. He can and by His grace, He will. You know, Jesus told us this. To follow Him means losing yourself, right? To follow Him means denying yourself, Luke 9. To follow Him means dying to yourself. None of those things. Our, our nature, we push back against that. I don't want that. I don't want to deny. I don't want to lose. I don't want to die. And yet that's the only place where life is found. I've been crucified with Christ I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself up for me. He loves you. And therefore he calls you to die. Because only in your death, only in the death to yourself, do you find life in him. Jesus said, this is John 12, Jesus said, uh, If anyone serves me, he must also follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also very obvious thing to say, but it's where I am, Jesus says, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where I am, Jesus says, there will my servant also be. Where is Jesus right now? Uh, verses 9 through 11, the name above all names, exalted forever in glory. Okay. Alright, but when he walked among us, when he showed us what it is to obey God in every respect, alright, his feet got dirty. His hands got dirty because he never took thought of himself only to serve and love those who he came to save. Where my servant is, right, or where I am, there my servant 
will be also. If I want to know Christ, the only way is down. If I want to know Him, then I've got to be willing to be covered up in His dust. Will I be raised up with Him? Yeah, the one Jesus who calls us downward, the Scripture says, I will raise Him up on the last day. That's you. You and me, we need to, we, we're raised up with Christ on the last day. We're promised that we will reign with Him forever and ever. But I'm telling you, I think the Scripture gives us this, this picture. The joy of reigning with Christ forever and ever is preceded by the joy of serving Christ in the secret places, the unknown, humble places of this world and even of our own hearts. And when we find that to be a joy, to take on His mind to serve, to take on His mind to debase myself in favor of my Lord and Savior, that's when we know that we're taking on His heart, His mind. For Him, for others, not for myself. If Jesus would humble Himself to bring salvation to sinners and then call us to live in like manner, then I pray that you and I pray for me that we would have a heart and a mind to say, I will settle for nothing less. I will never elevate myself if in the process I demean and, and devalue my Savior. Because the slave is not greater than the master. And yet the master calls me his brother. Because he loves me. If Christ loves you, trust that when he calls you to humility, it's for your good, it's for the good of the church and the world that they might know Christ in us, the city on the hill. And that we might become like him. If it's just the command and the example, we have no chance. We have no hope. But if the Spirit of God dwells in you to empower you, we can do it. I'm going to invite us to pray. And and my hope as we pray is that we would have... um, uh, What we've read today is so rich and deep, and and there's just just no way to get it in one sitting. And I don't know that I'll ever get it until I meet Christ face to face and get a sense of His true greatness. But this ought to get us to a place of humility. To recognize what he's done, who he is. And that he has brought us in, unworthy as we were. And so my hope is that as we pray, that we would take on that kind of heart. Humility. And pray that God would make it our default. Because we are devoted to and dependent on him. So Father, that's that's our, our hope. I... I know for a fact that I have nothing to offer you. And Father, protect, root out of me any sense of worthiness that maybe you're lucky to have me on your team. I was was a child of wrath. I was a rebellious enemy. And yet in your grace, you chose me to shed your blood for my sin and make me your own. And Lord, if that resonates with any of us in this room, and we ought to know it's true, then Lord, humility should be a no-brainer for us. Of course, of course, we recognize what we are in light of all that you are. We should be humble. But Lord, this is so much harder than just that, than just a simple flipping of a switch. We, we can't do this simply by saying we'll be more humble. This is, this is a deep-rooted sinfulness 
that only by your spirit within us can you root out and can you transform. And so I pray, Lord, that as we are the people of God, as we are those who have been called um, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, we are a people for your own possession, purified by you and zealous for good works. Lord, let that be. If that's our identity, then let it be, Father, our pursuit. Not to, not to just enjoy your blessing and, and be apathetic toward it. But Lord, to, to, to abide in you. Because we want to be like you. We want, we want to walk in the same manner that you walked. We want to have the same mind that you had. And so, Father, if there's any man or woman in this room and the Spirit of God dwells in them, then this is, this is what we want. And to want anything less is to betray uh, the Spirit in us. And so I pray, Father, that we would strive with all our energies, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Nothing, nothing that we have and nothing that we are came from us, Lord. We're just, we, we are what you have made us. And so I pray, Father, that we would have such a heart to say, I will, I will never lay my head on a pillow at night. Never. Saying this is a wasted day. A day of self-absorption. A day of empty conceit. But by your grace, Father, and by your Spirit, I can lay my head on the pillow saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm unworthy. But by God's grace, by God's grace, I took on more of Christ's mind today. By God's grace, I, sh I made it my goal, my ambition to please Him. And I can rest in His grace where I've fallen short. Father, we need You in, in ways that we'll never, we'll never, I, I need You more than I know. But Father, I pray that, uh, that, that scriptures like this would, um, would not lead me to a place of despair. I know I can't do it, Father, but but that I would sincerely believe that you're at work in me to produce it. And therefore, uh, it can be done, and it will be done, if I'll just abide in you. Father, thank you for the church, that we get to do this together. Together. And I pray we don't take that for granted. This is not an individual pursuit only, but we as brothers and sisters are called to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be this kind of people who humbly serve one another to set the tone for the church and I pray our city, which desperately needs a light in the darkness. Father, we, we owe everything to you. And here in a minute, we're going to stand and proclaim your praise and your worship to the glory of God the Father. But Lord, let it be that you would affect today a change in us and that we would leave here uh, different and better because Lord, we have we have hitched our wagon to you in every respect to live life to your glory. And so let it be so, I pray in Christ's name.